Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Esther Solomon in Tel Aviv. In the wake of the murderous October the 7th Hamas attack, Israel's government has set two key aims for its response, removing Hamas from power and securing the release of at least 240 hostages taken into captivity that day. But a fast-growing and vocal public campaign, led by hostage families, is putting pressure on the government and the army to prioritize the release of hostages above all else. During a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas, 113 hostages were released and returned to Israel, both Israelis and foreign nationals. Every night, Israelis were gripped by a strange made-for-television theater, often in darkness, dramatically illuminated by the headlights of jeeps and pickup trucks, as Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad militants brought a group of a dozen or more hostages to be handed over to Red Cross representatives. But that ceasefire ended last Friday. 125 hostages, both alive and dead, are still held in Gaza. And while the families of hostages and newly released ex-hostages, returnees as they're called in Hebrew, are still pressuring the government, some of their anger and frustration is now directed at the Red Cross itself. They accuse the International Humanitarian Organization of failing to visit hostages in captivity, not delivering medicines, and in general, confusing their mandate of neutrality with excessive passivity towards Hamas. The Red Cross has been described as acting like an Uber taxi driver. The president of what is more properly known as the International Committee of the Red Cross, Miriana Spoliaric, is actually visiting Gaza. She has noted the intolerable human suffering of civilians in Gaza and called on Hamas to release more hostages. On today's podcast, we're going to dive into the issue of the hostages, particularly the role of the Red Cross. Israel's history of relations with them, the accusations now being made against them, and the gap between the Red Cross's mandate and the immense expectations that Israelis have of them. We have three guests to shed light on this burning issue. Yael Friedson, Haaretz's legal correspondent, who's covered the hostage families intensively. Jonathan Adiri, formerly the IDF's chief liaison officer to the Red Cross. And Sarah Elizabeth Davies, spokesperson for the ICRC based in Jerusalem. Welcome to Yael Friedson, Haaretz's legal correspondent. Before October the 7th, you were mostly covering Netanyahu's criminal trial. Since then, you have been reporting on the plight of the hostages held by Hamas. Yael, thank you for being here. Can you talk a bit about the hostages and what we've learnt about the conditions they're being held in? Um, so during the past week and a half, um, th- there was been a big change in what we knew about the hostages. In the last week and a half since uh, hostages were released, uh, families and the IDF and the intelligence got much more information about the hostages. Until then, they hardly knew anything about many hostages. They didn't know if they were even alive or not. And since the hostages were released, they told about people that they were with and told about the um, very difficult conditions that they were kept. 
if in the beginning, uh, when Yochevet Lifshitz was the first hostage to be released, and she said that she got medical treatment, and she got said that she was fed, um, things had changed, especially as um, the IDF was conquering more um, parts of the Gaza Strip, and the conditions over there for the whole population became more poor. There was less food, um, there was less medical treatment, and unfortunately, we hear about very cruel treatment that some of uh, the hostages received. Um, if it's uh, separating siblings or uh, a mom and her or daughter, um, some of them were tortured, especially the children, which was very difficult to hear. And on the other hand, we do hear about many hostages that are alive, even though if their medical condition is not doing well. And their families are very concerned about every day that is going by without them being released. Right, because we have uh, still a very wide span of how old these hostages are. And some of them really are elderly hostages. And that's 59 days of captivity today uh, that they're marking. I mean, how much fear is there for the immediate uh, health condition of some of these hostages? Well, both the elderly, of course, but also there's uh, hostages that um, take regular medication. Some of the hostages, we know for a fact that they were injured severely. And um, one of the f- more famous hostages uh, that was released, Mia Shem, um, that she was the first hostage that Hamas released um, a video of her getting treatment. When she came back to Israel, she said that and a vet, a, um, a vet was doing the operation, not a doctor. Um, and it very, it varies each one of them where they were held and in what conditions. Some of them were held in the tunnels deep under the ground. They didn't see daylight for many, many days, and their conditions were more poor. Some of uh, the other hostages are held in different apartments, and therefore they're also more in more danger um, from the bombing of Israel. So every day that passes, it's both a matter of uh, where are they held and how are they treated, and they need medical care as soon as possible. So uh, at some of the protests, you know, there's this very vocal and impressive Uh, protest movement by the hostage families and now by some of the released hostages themselves. Some of the placards that are held up say, Red Cross, where are you? Now, where did the dissatisfaction with the Red Cross start in terms of this hostage crisis? And how has that dissatisfaction developed? What are the key accusations being made against the Red Cross? Well, first of all, since the beginning, there was an expectation um, from Hamas to let the Red Cross um, visit them. Um, And the Red Cross uh, representative met with the hostages' families um, a few times. And in some of these meetings, uh, they refused to take medication from them. And I think um, some of the families didn't quite understand that um, why they did so. They, they felt that they don't want to cooperate where this is just their policy that um, if there's medication so they can get a list and then um, they will provide the medication, but they, they can't take it from the families themselves. 
Um, also, everyone hopes that, you know, at least uh, the Red Cross representatives uh, could visit them and then uh, pass messages uh, from the families to the hostages, from the hostages to the families and someone objectively that isn't uh, Hamas um, that could tell what is their medical condition. Right. Now, in terms of access to the hostages, which obviously is a big expectation, as you say, of the uh, Israeli families uh, whose loved ones are being held uh, by Hamas, there was lots of talk that, especially by the Israeli side, that the ceasefire agreement that lasted at least for a week and sadly now uh, has disintegrated, it did actually stipulate that Hamas must let the Red Cross visit the hostages. Do we know anything uh, about this? Well, the Red Cross always tries to explain that they are neutral and they're not part of the agreement. And, and I mean, they will they will operate any agreements that both sides agree on. Um, and I think that's also part of the misunderstanding of uh, uh, the Israeli society of the expectations from them that um, you know. <laughs> They don't really have any power over Hamas. It's not um, up to them. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was the first one to announce that the part of the ceasefire agreement, um, there will be visits of the Red Cross of the hostages. And um, but that is a, was a part that the Red Cross wasn't involved in those kinds of agreements. And again, it only depends on um, Hamas to to let them or give them access, and that isn't happening. I think that um, the images of the Red Cross volunteers or workers um, that were transferring the uh, hostages from Hamas to Israel um, brought them more up to the to the image, like their images to the Israeli society. Who those were? These were the first um, images that came out of there, and therefore I think that. Um, people are assuming that they have much more power over Hamas than they actually have as just someone who's operating, transferring uh, the hostages. And just one more question. Do you think that um, the direction of the campaign or at least public anger towards the Red Cross is actually quite convenient for Israel's government at the moment because it deflects attention away from the call to negotiate another ceasefire, which is another of the key demands of the hostages' uh, families. I truly believe that the Israeli government would try their best to release the hostages. And I think it actually, I'm not sure if anyone is benefiting from this, I think, anger that, this public anger that they're looking for an address to, (laughs) who to Mm. address it. Um, And I mean, I... We all saw the last few releases that there were lots of uh, Palestinian and Hamas um, people armed and gunned. Um, It was a very scary situation for the hostages and I assume also for the Red Cross uh, representatives that were assisting them. Um, I mean, in the bottom line, they're in Gaza while uh, Israel is bombing Gaza. So I think that I'm not sure if it's (laughs) suiting anyone this campaign. Thank you very much, Yael. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Jonathan Adiri, you're now a healthcare entrepreneur, but you served as an advisor to President Shimon Peres and as the IDF's chief liaison officer to the Red Cross. So can you tell us a bit about the history of relations between Israel and the Red Cross, and especially as it relates to the issue of hostages? Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I think that, you know, from a bird's eye view, uh, Israel and the Red Cross has had quite a developed relationship. Um, it's been through like a sinus wave up and down, um, predominantly around the 50s, let's say through the late 70s. It had to do with captives uh, in the war, Six-Day War, the 73 War, and so on. And then for about 20 years, it went dormant. This relationship was more of an enablement uh, for the Red Cross to carry out their mission in uh, the West Bank and Gaza. Um, the turn of events happened around 2002. Um, and I would say throughout the Oslo years, it actually, you know, when the Palestinian Authority assumed its responsibility, the Geneva Conventions were less important uh, to be held within the territory. So the Red Cross you know, kind of withdrew in a way. 2002 was a watershed moment. The uh, Operation Hamat Magen Defensive Shield, where Israel kind of reintroduced itself via the military into the Palestinian cities, that actually brought back the Red Cross and the interfaces and the friction uh, was new. They were new. They weren't about um, hostages or captives. They were about helping the Red Cross uh, uphold their commitments to the Geneva Conventions by protecting what the convention calls protected persons because suddenly there is no sovereign in the West Bank or in Gaza that takes care of those people. Um, the Palestinian Authority was not a state, therefore these are unprotected people. And, and that created a very high, I'd say, intensity of friction between the Red Cross and Israel. And suddenly the, the magnitude uh, and the diversity of topics kind of expanded from visiting arrested Palestinian terrorists before or after uh, they stood trial and making sure that all that process is according to the Geneva Convention, all the way through the Red Cross's um, opinion, formal opinion, as it related to the legality of the of the separation fence, of the, def of the defense uh, um, establishment, because The Hague was uh, engaged in dialogue around that, and the Red Cross uh, was the one to basically uh, deliver their opinion that the fence was constructed in, in accordance with the Geneva Conventions under the construct of the Israeli Supreme Court. So you were in office uh, as the liaison officer during a major hostage deal with Hezbollah. What was the Red Cross's role in that, if any? So the Red Cross, at the end of the day, carries the same role every time. Both sides, both parties have to agree. They don't facilitate the negotiation. They don't take part in that. We negotiated with Hezbollah through the German secret services who were kind of taking the role of Qatar in, in the equivalent uh, time for what's going on right now. But ultimately, the facilitation on the ground uh, is critical. These are They often get called in when there's zero trust among both sides. And they bring in their neutrality and the fact that they're not a political organization. I think maybe in brackets here, there are you know UN organizations that are subject to the political disease of the UN family of organizations, the Security Council, the Russian veto, the Chinese position, so on and so forth. Some of them act, are active such was the case also in the Hezbollah deal. That's UNIFIL under Chapter 7. They oh, have the peacekeeping force in, uh, in Lebanon, southern Lebanon. Under yes. a clear mandate from the Security Council with weapons and the ability to enforce. 
the Red Cross is not among that category. They do not enforce, and they always depend on the willingness of the, I would say, de facto ruler to provide them with access. So in the context of Hezbollah, supposedly the state of Lebanon should not allow for the Red Cross to have any bearings because they're a sovereign state, so the people there are not protected persons. But Hezbollah did not allow for the Red Cross to have any access uh, to those held captive uh, in, 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 that, in that exchange. So they were reduced to their, I would say, operational functions. That being said, without the Red Cross throughout that Sunday to Thursday execution, a very complicated deal that included bodies and living uh, um, tr- prisoners, who two of which were the ex-heads of Hezbollah, Sheikh Ubaid and Sheikh Dirani, um, that complexity would not have unfolded otherwise. So, you know, I would not, um, I mean, when, when people here recently tried to reduce them, now there's kind of this uh, statement, oh, they're like a get tax, like an Uber for, for captiving, captives in, in Gaza. I would not reduce them to that function. That function is critical. Um, and the fact that there is an organization that has enough, I would say, carrying capacity to accept uh, our hostages and bring them to safety is nothing to to be taken lightly. So where does this public anger come from? Is that because Israelis simply don't understand what a group like the Red Cross really should do, or is that their expectations of them are wrong, or is it the kind of uh, sad experience, as you explained before, about the United Nations of serial disappointment with international institutions? So, so I think the, the answer here is divided in three. I think first, and, and you've touched upon that, there's a, there's a gap of expectations. We've, you know, we've suffered um, you know, a large degree of disappointment from international organizations that are stronger than the Red Cross. Unifil is, is one of them. And this is also critical. That sentiment is critical for the day after the war in Gaza because part of the conversation is, is there going to be an international force in the day after, and, and the skepticism and sort of what's going on right now with the Red Cross is actually driving public opinion, and I would even say on the merit, away from that as a, as a plausible and effective solution. So I think first and foremost, it's an ex, it's a mis-expectations, misaligned expectations. The second piece, Hamas, what they did on October 7th, and the disregard, the contempt to humanitarian, basic humanitarian values, rape and, you know, the killing of the innocents and burning and so on, has put the Israeli public at odds with the sense that we, you know, there is no reciprocity with the Red Cross. We allow for the Red Cross to visit. We sort of grant the Red Cross with full, op, you know, right to operate within Israel um, with Palestinian prisoners and, you know, due process and all the stipulations of the Geneva Convention, whereas on the other side, they're not even able to, quote-unquote, reciprocate and deliver drugs, medications, not even visit, right? And I think there's merit to that. There's merit to that because this is an injured national psyche, uh, right, and rightly so, and people seek the, the, I would say, the comforting knowledge that, at least the Red Cross, right? That's the kind of very basic, the bottom of humanity, what can happen. And if they fail, then all of humanity has failed. And in that sense, the Red Cross has a very high bar in that sense, right? If, if they can't deliver, then, then who else do we, do we kind of reach out to? And from that perspective, I think just to, that's the third layer. We got to be very honest about this. Hamas lost in the last eight weeks all its, I would say, military leverages on Israel, right? Rockets don't drive us. 
Um, they've promised this and that surprise on the battlefield, and they've all failed. It's sad to say, but they've effectively, I mean, it, it really is sad to say, they've effectively weaponized the hostages. And so in a situation whereby the only means for them to create leverage on Israel are the hostages, the odds of them allowing freedom of operation to the Red Cross, in my view, are, are slim as they've effectively weaponized uh, the hostages. Some of the anger that is directed at the Red Cross is really in some ways misdirected or redirected anger against Hamas because it's as if the Red Cross is supposed to make something happen that can't happen. N- not only that it can't happen, I think we also have to respect the fact that they have a, a force safety issue, right? Uh, those of us who watch the very well-crafted and curated uh, release of hostages, those are two or three Red Cross op- operatives, you know, surrounded by terrorists, surrounded by very violent mobs, Right. Their safety is critical for them. And we want them to be safe because otherwise in future deals, there's not going to be anyone there to, to drive folks out. There is merit to the Israeli public's, uh, um, I would say, anger and rage. And it comes again, it, it's driven by two issues that I think have very, I would say, profound merit. One is if, if, inter- if you know, and for that matter, the, the Red Cross symbolizes the world or humanity, you know, it's, it's their disadvantage from that perspective. But I can totally understand people saying, well, if they can't even deliver drugs, medication, then what is the world good for? Not just the Red Cross. It's kind of like an emblem, right? It's, it's a broader context. And the second, I'd say, reason for b- people being angry, and, and I think you heard it prior from Yael as it relates to what the Red Cross can do, they definitely can publicly, I would say, um, announce or inform the world and the international community that Hamas is preventing them from doing very basic rudimentary things that are, I would say, you know, the baseline of, of human conduct, which is to deliver medicine, which is to see the hostages. They have failed to do that. Um, is that the kind of statement they would make about other hostage they, situations they around do the world? That. Or no, is that, I, I mean, that even in itself put them in a difficult position? I don't think so. I think that there is a moral, I would say, uh, imperative that any organization should feel comfortable to kind of share their professional, I would say, worldview. This one is beyond reproach. It's very clear they're not getting access. They haven't received access to Gilad Shalit. They, you know, neither have they received access in, in the north with Hezbollah. Um, I think it does have merit because you see the president of the, of the Red Cross visiting Gaza right now, visiting Ismail Haniya, like, I think last week in Qatar. This guy, before he met her, gave an interview in Arabic, uh, I'm, I'm the grandchild of an Iraqi uh, grandma, so I understand the Arabic relatively well. We require the blood of Gazan civilians to prosper, something along these lines, right? So she meets a person who's willing to say these vile things, right? And I totally understand why she needs to meet him, because otherwise she doesn't have, you know, the flexibility to operate within Gaza and her people will not be safe. That's totally fine. But on the other hand, not to be able to and I don't, I don't mean, you know, to kind of create a diplomatic assault against, you know, the nature of Hamas. That's known to everybody. But to express, I would say, a very basic moral kind of, I'd say, baseline and say, we are not, the Red Cross is not being provided access. Uh, and we are not even interfacing with representatives of the de facto ruler on the ground to provide um, medication. I think it's a, it's a dry, basic statement that, I think should be said, and there's merit to the fact that that 
that should be expected of the Red Cross. Now, just as a final question, but between your experience of uh, Hezbollah and the hostage deal and what you've seen now between Hamas and the hostage situation here, are they comparable, one worse than the other, fighting each other for supremacy in the worst, in the kind of yeah. dismal stakes? I think, I think the sheer number here um, is makes it you know the dynamic is is I think maybe maybe unprecedented globally not just in the context of our not just globally obviously in terms of Israel and and why the public reaction is yeah you know, and, so and, widespread as well and I think you know um, those of us who've seen on the day um, the GoPro footage not the ones that some of them found their way to the government uh, uh, kind of collection of of evidence. This was not some, you know, Hezbollah was a, an ambush against soldiers. This is kind of within the rules of the game of belligerent parties. I think that, again, the, the national psyche um, is, is injured. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks to Sarah Elizabeth Davis, spokesperson for the ICRC based in Jerusalem. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Sarah, I'm sure you're aware of the depth of public feeling about the Red Cross, as it's more commonly known in Israel these days. I just wanted to give you one example from a recent opinion piece in Haaretz uh, by Ronnie Fantanesh Malkai. What has happened to that international organization, meaning the Red Cross, whose staff flies all over the world to help refugees, to provide shelter and security to the defenseless. What has happened to it since the October the 7th massacre? Why aren't we seeing the same determination when it comes to the Israeli hostages being held by Hamas? The International Committee of the Red Cross is betraying its job. It's pretty harsh words, but can you understand these accusations and where do you think the anger towards the Red Cross is coming from. Thank you, firstly. Um, this is a very uh, important aspect to address. I mean, we absolutely understand the, the frustration, the anger, the fury, the heartbreak, um, you know, the intense emotions that people are experiencing right now, that people have been experiencing since the 7th of October. Uh, we understand that people have had their entire lives not just disrupted, but torn apart. We acknowledge that there is uh, potentially misconceptions about our ability and what we what we are able to do as the International Committee of the Red Cross, as a neutral intermediary, as a uh, impartial independent organisation. I believe that this does come from a misunderstanding of what our role is in this conflict, uh, in conflicts around the world. Um, and what we are able to do, what, what we are able to implement uh, in conflicts like the one that we're seeing right now. So maybe uh, if it's a question of misunderstanding your mandate, especially uh, in regards to hostages, can you actually explain what is the ICRC mandate for hostages? And in this specific case, the Israeli hostages being held by Hamas, what, is, what are the limits of what you can actually do? So in the case of hostages, uh, in, I mean, in the case of any 
conflict where we need to be that neutral intermediary, where we need to be that, that bridge or that middle organisation, what we need is the agreement of all those who are involved to the conflict. We are always ready. We are always uh, waiting for that agreement, as we have seen recently. When that agreement comes into play, when we have a solid confirmation that those who are involved in the conflict, uh, in this case the uh, Israel and Hamas, uh, have agreed through however that may be, through the help of, of mediators, through the help of other states or authorities, uh, <clears throat> then we can step into action. We cannot uh, force our way in. We don't have weapons. Uh, we don't have political affiliation. We don't have political power. We stay neutral so that we can be trusted, and this is not, not something that is always easily understood, um, particularly in the emotional uh, reality of a conflict, but we need to be trusted by all those involved in the conflict uh, to stay neutral, to stay focused on our role. Uh, and this includes, in, in the case of the hostages, being able to be that, that transport to meet Hamas, to receive the hostages into our care and to safely transport them um, out of Gaza. Now, I know that the ICRC has been active even before the issue of a potential hostage release uh, came up. The ICRC has been active in other areas since October the 7th. Can you give some idea about what exactly the Red Cross has been doing and bring us up to date in terms of the visit of the ICRC president, Mariana Spoljarich, today to Gaza? Mm -hmm. So as you, uh, as you said, we have been uh, working in this region uh, in the delegation of Israel and the occupied territories since 1967. In that time, we have provided uh, various programs, uh, and this includes things like mental health support uh, for the Israeli citizens, for those who live in the southern area of Israel close to Gaza, uh, because we know that even before this conflict, uh, the, the stress, the anxiety, the, the reality of living, you know, with the sound of sirens uh, as a constant um, has an impact on people mentally, psychologically and emotionally. There are programs uh, like that that we uh, support, that we work with local organisations for. Uh, since this conflict began, of course, we have also offered things like um, technical and material support uh, for forensics and also um, other local organisations. Uh, we, are, we are discussing with them uh, the potential for us to, to support them um, for those who have, of course, been, been impacted. Uh, we do have uh, our president currently in the region. Um, she is uh, on part of a multi-stop visit, and this does include visiting Israel. Before she, she visited this region, because of this conflict, she has also met in Geneva with the families of the hostages uh, multiple times. She's spoken with them, she's engaged with them, uh, listened to them and their, their stories and hearing about you know, their loved ones. Um, and spoken to them about what we are doing behind the scenes, things that are not always publicly seen, but which we are very uh, relentlessly working on. Uh, that is a priority for us. Conversations that are happening, dialogue that, are ha that is happening with multiple actors, multiple groups, multiple authorities uh, to ensure that the 
understanding the obligations of international humanitarian law are understood, one of these being that hostage taking is prohibited, first and foremost, that we are calling for the immediate release of these hostages and that we are calling for the access to them so that we can speak with them, uh, ensure that they have a, a connection to their family, um, give them a, a medical or a welfare check um, and pass on any, any an essential medication that they may need. Right. Now, in terms of obviously access to the hostages, which is a very, very concerning issue for many Israelis, especially as more testimonies come out as to the deteriorating conditions, health conditions of some of the hostages and in general the conditions that they're being held in, including torture. What the Red Cross itself, because of its neutral position, can't actually use any kind of leverage but you are one of the few parties that has access to both warring sides mm -hmm. I mean the contention is that you could make a stronger statement that Hamas is not allowing access to these hostages I mean you said that you call for access but you have not said specifically Hamas is not allowing access is that because mm -hmm. you can't use that kind of judgmental language? So this is, uh, yeah, absolutely a very big part of our role as a neutral organisation. There are things that we will publicly call for and there are things that we discuss directly with uh, the concern, like the involved parties or authorities or states or armed groups uh, behind the scenes. So we have insisted, um, not just publicly, but behind the scenes, as I said, every single day, we are following all means. Uh, we are speaking to not just Hamas, but worldwide contacts with armed groups and states. Um, we are also continuing the conversation on multiple levels within Hamas. You know, our president has, has had uh, meetings with the leadership of Hamas at the, the highest levels and face-to-face. -face. This is not something that is a one-off. This is not something that we, we do once or twice and let go. This is a priority for us. This is something that we will continue doing. We will continue pushing for. We will continue insisting until we get that access, until we, we see the, the release of the hostages. This is not something that we are not constantly, constantly pushing for. We, we know the impact that this is. Of course, we can never fully understand, but we, we, we do know that the impact this has on families, and not just the families, but the hostages themselves, um, as well as people around the world who know them, neighbours, loved ones, friends, uh, teachers, this has such a wide impact on so many people. And this is exactly why we are here, to be that neutral organisation who, even if we are sometimes misunderstood, we will still stay focused on our role and what we can do uh, in this situation. This is not something we will stop working for. We absolutely understand the gravity of this situation and the steps that we will continue to take. We hope to see our calls, our calls answered, the, that they will be released, that we will have access to them so that we can provide this uh, the medical assistance, the, the connection between their family members and them, which is really I can't overstate how important that is in a situation like this where they don't have news of their family, where their families don't have news of them, where they haven't been able to speak for more than two months now. Right. 
Now, I just want to, for my final question, I just wanted to step sideways a bit. Um, when, during the period of the, the week-long ceasefire, Israelis were, uh, were gripped by this somewhat theatrical uh, spectacle of Hamas and Islamic Jihad bringing the hostages uh, to a specific place, and then there's this handover to the Red Cross uh, representatives. Now, what is it like from what you know and from speaking to your colleagues, what is it like to be an unarmed representative of the Red Cross in Gaza right now and to be involved in one of these hostage releases? I mean, as you say, as we saw, uh, it was a very overwhelming experience. I did speak to our team members, um, some of our team members who were involved um, in these operations I mean, for us, we are unarmed all around the world. We don't have weapons anywhere that we work. Um, we rely ourselves on our neutrality to be that protection. Um, so it's not something that we're not used to. However, this situation, um, especially as the, the nights continued, um, was emotionally overwhelming. I, I know that, you know, physically there were crowds um, and it was as I said, a bit chaotic, but for our team members, their their priority really at that time was the safety and reassurance uh, that they could give to the hostages, to those who we knew had been held for weeks, who didn't know uh, what, who, sorry, who may not have known what was happening, who were being taken from one point to another, passed over into another car, um, and who, who potentially were in a bit of a state of shock, who were panicking, who were not sure uh, what was going on. So their first priority was really to reassure the hostages that we're the Red Cross, we are here um, to take you out of Gaza, to give you the, the medical assistance um, and, of course, eventually be um, reunited with your loved ones and families. But it, it was a very overwhelming time for my team. Some of them said that the, the relief that they saw on, on the faces of those people who had been held hostage um, and the emotions, it, it moved them to tears almost. Um, but of course, as I said, their first focus was that operation and completing that. The operation doesn't end just because they have um, those who had been held hostage in the cars. You know, they still have to uh, take the steps to leave Gaza and then hand them onwards uh, to where I believe the Israeli authorities had organised the medical assessment, the psychological assessment, um, and in the end be, like, thankfully reunited um, with some of their loved ones. Thank you very much, Sarah, for this. Thank you so much. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Yael Friedson, Jonathan Adiri, and at Sarah Elizabeth Davies, producer Dan Brommer, and editor Nahara Malkin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>